Yes, we are uh, going into the minor prophets. We're working through Zechariah and sadly kind of coming near the end. Uh, I I will not, Lord willing, I I don't plan to finish next week, although there's only one more chapter. After this week, it'll take a couple of weeks to sort of summarize things and maybe, you know, put it it together to understand uh, some of the major uh, themes of the book. So that's our plan. But we're in in chapter 13 of Zechariah. Chapter 13. You know, it's very important to believe the truth about God. Actually, there's nothing more important than that. Um, Just the other day, our grandchild, who... uh, not in, the, not in the room right now. <laughs> His name is uh, Ezekiel. Zeke. Sweet, wonderful baby. But uh, uh, Mormor, which is Norwegian and Swedish for grandmother, uh, Mormor had been working with some, uh, what's it called? Uh, Wind-up, re-up, a weed killer. What's it called? Roundup. Roundup. Working with it and spraying it. Uh, and uh, she put it back in the garage and then, like, you know, sometime later, he went over and started grabbing for it. Unfortunately, I, f- I found him, you know, right just then when he sort of picked up the wand and hadn't, hadn't done anything yet. And she had turned it off, and it was on locked position. So. <laughs> but it just reminded me of, uh, you know, it's very important uh, to know the truth. And, you know, poison is poison. You need to know what it is. Um, and it's very important to know the truth about God. And unfortunately, I say unfortunately because that's my point of view, but in God's sovereign plan, quite honestly, he's put the truth out there in a hugely competitive environment where lots of people are challenging the truth all the time. They'll tell you with all sincerity and great persuasion things that just aren't true about God. Uh, They may be convincing you to drink the poison, saying it's fine, it's not going to hurt you, uh, and and yet it's deadly dangerous, obviously, has to be avoided. This chapter really emphasizes uh, the reality that it matters what you think about God. And false prophets are not just... um, just something that we, we tolerate mentally and emotionally and sort of think, well, they're just a little off and, you know, partly they're wrong and we, we can sort of sort it out and some of the stuff they say is good and some of it's dangerous. And uh, this chapter says God has a different point of view about false prophets and about purity and about uncleanness, about idolatry, that the false prophets are actually supporting. It's, it's so important to, uh, as we have opportunity now, to be persuaded of the truth and to live by the truth. You know, how, is, how important is it for us to be extremely careful with poisons in our garage now that we have a sweet little, very, very curious uh, boy running around, right? It's pretty important, wouldn't you say? Yeah, very important. Um, it's, and, and, and it's actually even, you know, that, as important as that is, and it's extremely important 
Spiritual truth is eternally important and even higher and more important, higher rank importance. Uh, so what we have here is a, a challenging interpretation because it's one of those times where we see layers of interpretation. In other words, different time frames in which this will be fulfilled. Uh, there's one time frame that it meant something to the people here and as the original people heard it in 500 B.C. And that yet it's definitely pointing to many events that, from their point of view, have not happened at all. From our point of view, some of them have happened, but a great deal of this passage is still to come, still in the future. We don't know when that future is. Yet at the same time, it's current right now because it's teaching us spiritual principles that apply to us today, right now. In It's 2018. And it, I think it's February 11th, 2018, which is not my birthday, by the way. But thank you for saying happy birthday. <laughs> my birthday, but we're celebrating it today. Anyway, never mind all that. That's a side note, right? <laughs> but it's current today. So those are the three layers I'm trying to deal with as I come to this passage of Scripture, primarily thinking about when will this fully be fulfilled? And secondly, how does it apply to me right now in my life today? The theme is God's power, his sovereign work to save. God brings purity and salvation. Uh, Our psalm emphasized that same thing. It was God who came in uh, to save them and help them. And it is God that saves us as well. Um, Let me just pull in the last bit of chapter 12. it's, it's just wonderful. Uh, verse 10, 12, 10. And I will pour out, let me read the text. And I will pour out, this is God, deciding to take action in these human beings' lives. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So here's these people living in rebellion, angry with God, blaming God for their problems. And he's going to change all that and, you know, kind of baptize them. He's going to pour out, splash them good with a new spirit. And it'll be a spirit of grace. God will be gracious to them. And they will start pleading for mercy. Huge change for them. Look at it in verse 10. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. What is this saying? That at some point, in a a historical point in the future, uh, on uh, the house of David, the kingly line of the Jews, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, which really basically means the Jewish people, He's going to change their heart about Jesus Christ. They rejected their Messiah. And we know this happened around 33 AD. They rejected their Messiah. They they pierced him. They uh, crucified him. They said, you know, imagine the, the priests and the leaders screaming out, crucify him, crucify him. 
uh, you know, coercing the Romans to have him hung on a cross. You know, what a horrible, dark, ugly moment. And, and at some point, and it goes on to describe, there will be this huge change, and there'll be mourning for this. Um, and it'll be general, the whole group of people, but extremely specific as well. Each individual will, has to come to this point where they say, yeah, I, know, I rejected Christ. He died for me, and I'm, I mourn for that. Uh, I receive it, though, as grace, and I'm pleading for mercy, uh, but I, will, I mourn for that individually. So that's what uh, verses 11, 12, and 13 say, um, all this mourning going on, this sadness for sin uh, is a huge change of heart for them. And then the Verse 13, I mean, 13, 1. Uh, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Obviously the same people that he's talking about in verse 10. What will this fountain do? It will cleanse them from sin and from uncleanness. God is going to save them. God's going to say, you are filthy, guilty in my sight. You, you uh, are the reason the Messiah died. But the Messiah purchases grace and mercy for you in that very death that we caused. And out of that comes cleansing. We're washed clean from sin. And it's the glorious gospel that you and I can be totally cleansed of all our sin because of the power of the blood of Jesus Christ from all sin and uncleanness. Okay, so we looked at that a little bit last week. It's great to completely think about that gorgeous text. Let's move on through the rest of the passage then. Verse 2. On that day, okay, you know, not to interrupt myself too much, but this is saying that there's this day coming. This day, this day, it's going to happen. He repeats this over and over. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, in my power and my sovereignty, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, you shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. Again, the question is, is it a big deal to communicate falsehood about God? It's a huge deal. God is highly motivated that his prophets speak the truth. Um, you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And look at this. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. That's the same exact Hebrew word as they will look on him whom they have pierced. Uh, God is saying at some point in the future, he's going to completely stop all that competitive environment, all of that counter-truth being taught. And a lot of it's being taught from pulpits. You know, the, these are people are saying, hey, I'm a prophet. 
Listen to me. I'm, uh, I've got a vision, and God spoke to me, and I'm saying this about God. Uh, you know, we have to be extremely careful that what the prophet, what the preacher, what the witness is saying is the truth versus something they made up. And again, but that's all true here and now, but it also prophet, it's pushing ahead to some point where God in his sovereign power is going to move in and finally fix it once and for all. It's going to be a glorious, amazing day. On that day, verse 4, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive. This is talking about how a prophet would wear the vestments and look all amazing um, and sort of gain authority because, hey, I got the costume on. I'm playing a part here. Look at me. I got this weird collar. I am authoritative. Speak to me. I mean, let me speak to you, right? Um, No, he says, someday that's all going to stop. And of course, it's a warning for us uh, today as well. But verse 5, but he will say, I am no prophet. I'm a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, this is a little obscure, verse 6, I'll give you a quick explanation of what I think it actually is. Uh, and, and if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? Okay. If you note, the text does say, uh, look down, the Hebrew is actually between your hands, which mm, to me means more like they say on your chest. Uh, I don't know how they got to your back at this point, but that doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Uh, this, this, I think this is a false prophet, and he has these wounds on him and these big welts of scars and uh, they're, they're challenging well that, those are the welts that the prophets get when they cut themselves in, in a frenzy of wanting revelation and a frenzy of trying to get closer to God they, they would do this they do it today even uh, you know cut themselves and get all f- up in a froth and a uh, uh, the, the, he has these scars, and he says, no, 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 no. These are wounds I received in the house of my friends. These, these aren't religious marks. That's what I think it means. That's what most uh, interpreters think this means. Again, it's somewhat obscure. Uh, but it's, it's simply mainly, the big picture is, it's talking about a huge change that is to come when God himself, that's what it will take, you and I can't do this. Like, let's launch a whole new web page that will completely silence all the false teachers. <laughs> this is not going to happen. We don't have the power to do that. Uh, God will do it once and for all. And until that happens, you and I must be on our guard. Watch out uh, for what any pastor says, myself included, that we be like the Bereans, you know, who, who they heard Paul teaching. And they said, well, let me check the scripture on that. Be noble and, and follow God's word alone. Okay, now I'm, I'm just reading the text at this point. Verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd, And the sheep will be scattered. 
I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer. I will say, they are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. Let's pause to pray. Father, as we spend the next few minutes in this text, Lord, please, uh, first of all, Help me to speak the truth only, O Lord, from your word. Secondly, O Lord, teach us about yourself and encourage us today. Bring us closer so that we could cry out, you are our God, and that you will say, these are my people. That's our desire, O Lord. Would you purify us and clean us in that great fountain Uh, that is drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Oh, Father, thank you for striking the shepherd on our behalf. Uh, Thank you, oh, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Now, just in the remaining minutes we have together, I want to kind of go back through this and, as I said, hopefully uh, make some good sense of it uh, for us all and talk about what it's supposed to be saying to us. Uh, is, Is that a good idea? Okay. Since you're here, let's go ahead and do this. (laughs) First, a drink of water. The chronology is challenging in this passage. In other words, what comes first? Um, Because as as I've read it already and, and sort of interpreted as I read it, I believe the strict chronology of this text actually starts, the first thing that's going to happen is verse 7. And that's okay. The chronology of all prophecies is often mixed up. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll figure it all out, you know, later on in the future. But we, in other words, we know this awake, O sword, against my shepherd does uh, come uh, first. It's, it's, we know this happened, okay? That's what I'm trying to say. This historically happened. What is he talking about? It's pretty plain if you're a believer. Uh, this idea of a sword. A uh, sword is a symbol of power. It's actually a symbol of capital punishment. Um, and here is God. And this is a little bit of poetry. That's why it's laid out differently in your Bible. Uh, here is God speaking to his sword, a personification of this weapon. You know, Awake, O sword. And... Who should the sword kill? You know, to whom should it be really pointed? To those who have rebelled against God, to those who have break, broken His laws, to those who have been uh, worshiping the idols. And so the the shocking thing here is he takes his sword against my shepherd, and this is a reference to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ. Uh, it, it is God's absolute indication that he himself will cause the death of the Messiah. He has a plan to do it. Now, one of the greatest passages actually in sort of the entire Bible is found in Isaiah. 
And here's some great words, Isaiah 52 and 53 in that area. This is from Isaiah 53, verse 10. It says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This is saying God the Father, it was his plan, his will to crush his own son. Again, Jesus had not sinned. He didn't deserve the wrath of God in any way, shape, or form. We deserved the capital punishment, the eternal death that Jesus took in the execution on the cross. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So don't, ever, don't let false teachers say, well, you know, Satan killed Jesus. And there was a big, you know, big rebellion and they ganged up on Jesus and they killed him. And God said, oh no, what are we going to do here? Uh, God's the first cause of the crucifixion. He did this for us. He took his own wrath out upon his own son. He takes his wrath out on Jesus Christ. Again, reading the scripture, Isaiah 53. He, he has put him to death. When his soul makes an offering for guilt. See, that's what Jesus did on the cross. He became the offering for our guilt. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, and that's uh, those people who uh, become children of God because of his great work on the cross. We're the offspring of Jesus. We're the offspring of God. He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This is saying once he dies, he will resurrect. He will uh, be involved with life beyond the grave. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. So right here, the, we know this chronologically happened. Uh, Jesus Christ was crucified, and that happened, as I said, in roughly 32, uh, 33 A.D., and then he says, and the sheep will be scattered. Uh, this actually happened directly, and it's in the Bible, Right after the crucifixion, the disciples uh, ran and hid. They, they were scattered. Um, but it also, again, seems to apply to the Jews because after this time and then in 70 AD when the temple was smashed, they, they, they were spread throughout the entire globe and they have not yet gathered uh, to a temple to worship God again. The sheep will be scattered and I will, look at this, this is verse 7. And I will turn my hand against the little ones. They'll be under tremendous testing and a trial period of time. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. Now, is this just a you know, metaphorical language, or is this really going to happen? Well, when you read the book of, of Revelation, you find out that it refers to this same scale of destruction that is going to happen. In the future, this is from the book of, uh, 
of uh, Jeremiah. Look at Jeremiah with me. I didn't uh, print it out, but Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah 30, verse 7 through 11, predicts what is often called the time of Jacob's distress or Jacob's trouble. Alas, the day is so great. There is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob. Yet he shall be saved out of it. Jacob, of course, is symbolic. He's the father of the people of Israel. It's going to be a horrible time of distress. Uh, it's, it's been ongoing yay, all of these years, and it, it's going to get worse and worse toward the very end, but he will be saved out of it. Verse 8, and, and it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away, and your offspring from the land of their captivity, Jacob, shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. See, these are prophecies that have not yet taken place. Israel has not been regathered in the nation of Israel, and where they're living in peace and security and worshiping the Lord and having David their king. Verse 11, last verse I'll read from this uh, Jeremiah 30. For I am with you to save you. See, this is all about the sovereign power of God. It is God's power that moves in to save his people, to bring purity. For I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you. But of you I will not make a full end. See, so there's people who say, well, God's done with Israel. He, he, he's shifted that all to the church now, and all of the promises are fulfilled in the church. Again, there's so, so many prophecies in the Old Testament that question that deeply in my heart, and here's one of them. <laughs> but I will not make you a full end, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure and I will by no means leave you unpunished. And that's what's happening, and that's what happens in our text, Zechariah 13, right? Uh, he's going to put them, look at verse 9, and the remaining third, I will put this third into a fire, and I will refine them as one refined silver, and test them as gold is tested. Now there's this, Again, that seems to me like what Jeremiah is talking about when he says the time of Jacob's trouble. Uh, this, this huge testing of these people to bring them to the Lord. And uh, I put this up real quick. This is sort of a quick outline of the book of Revelation. I'm going to leave this up for like one second. So don't bother writing it down. We can talk more about it. But from verse chapter 4 to like ver, uh, chapter 3, 19, it describes three sets of horrible judgments to come on the earth. 
the seals on the scroll, and then the trumpets. There's seven trumpets. The seventh seal opens up the seventh uh, the trumpets, and then the, then the vials or bowls of judgment are, are, uh, are poured out. And as I said, the, the third and the two-thirds are described in many of these horrible judgments to come. Again, we'll have to talk more about that later. But where does, the, where does this difficulty bring them? Uh, again, look at verse uh, 9. And they will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Uh, this, this horrible pain and suffering pushes them to total real repentance, radical repentance. And I think that plugs into chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David uh, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. I think that brings us full circle to uh, the beginning of our text. On that day, they will, they will be pushed to full repentance, and God's going to pour out on them a sense of mourning and sorrow for their sin, and they will be forgiven and cleansed of, of their sin, which is, again, a, a historic future, and yet it's a spiritual principle that applies to us today, too. The same reality is available to us when we have sinned, and God in his grace opens our heart and mind to the reality of our sin. I don't know if you've had that experience, but if you're a believer, if you're a disciple of Christ, you, you had that experience where he just whacks you with the reality of your sin, and I'm, wow, I am a real sinner. I, I need to repent I need, I need cleansing. I need forgiveness. And there's a, a true sense of sorrow. And, and that's a beautiful act of the power and grace of God uh, in our lives. So it's interesting that uh, our reader of the psalm today, Bennett, uh, said, let's look, at, let's look at what Israel did wrong uh, over and over and this describes what they were doing wrong in their lives, what, what led them so far from the Lord. Verse 2 and following. Uh, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land. And then he's going to silence. I think he's primarily talking about false prophets here. Uh, but the reality is, too, that uh, the real prophets will be silenced, too. There won't be any fresh word of God coming on, but there's a lot in this text that kind of thinks it's mainly just the unclean, you know, the false prophets that he's talking about. And I see, I feel a little tension there, uh, uh, and I'm, I'm not sure, but, but he's going to cut off the names of the idols and then stop the false prophets finally, as I said, re- remove the gospel from that in, in competitive environment that he purposely placed it in, um, and then... Uh, there will be this sense of cleanness. So I have a, a silly slide about goof off here. Uh, yeah, the removing the stain. You know, the, we are idolaters, and God needs to move into our hearts and remove the, the name of the idol even. 
uh, that is bothering us so much. And then he says, you know, silence. I'm going to silence the false prophets. So the, the big sin of the people of Israel is, is the sin of all of us. Whenever we rebel against God, we're actually idolaters. Whenever we put anything in front of God, we are committing idolatry. Um, it's not a golden calf probably in our life, but uh, it, it, it has many, many different names. Here's a little, you know, uh, what are some of the idols in our life that keep us from God? This is pleasure right here. I think that's not big enough, you know. <laughs> I think a really big part of, really all of these things sort of to bring us pleasure and joy. It feels good. That's why we want success. That's why we want comfort, approval, power, culture. Uh, what does that say? Possessions, yeah, yeah. Career, fa- family. Family can be an idol. You know, many people are trying to be good parents, so they don't have time for God. Uh, shockingly enough, yourself is just an idol. Entertainment, huge one in America. We're entertaining ourselves to death, and religion can be and fame. Uh, idolatry is the problem. Uh, and he's going to purge the idols. And we have to ask him to purge the idols from our lives. Uh, God doesn't want to share us. Remember uh, in the book of Zechariah, we ran into the word jealousy. Or God is jealous. And here's, here's the, those references. Zechariah 1.14. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out. Say this loudly so the people pay attention to you. Cry out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. When he saves us, he wants us. And our hearts and minds wander and we start to entertain sinful thoughts. We have enemies. We have the world that's convincing us, no, it's really okay. And Satan himself, you know, encourages us. It's, it's okay to sin against God. And this is actually fueled and supported by false teachers. You know, people who want to convince us that it's, you know, it's really okay. Those are old-fashioned rules. Nobody believes that. And besides, you know, God's really forgiving. Even if it's wrong, he'll forgive you. Um, ever heard that sort of reasoning? It's rampant in our society. Um, and, and so God is saying that we must deal seriously with this idolatry and blot it out and deal with it uh, aggressively in our lives. We live in uh, an age of persuasion. The, this talks a lot about the false teachers and why is it so important to teach the truth about God? Why is it so important to carefully study the Word of God and compare Scripture with Scripture to come up with an accurate picture of who God is? You know, there's there's a difference between clear water and clear Roundup. They both look really drinkable, you know, but one is not, you know, and one one is fine. Uh, So you have to be really careful in how you deal with uh, spiritual poison. And so watch the age of persuasion. Watch 
the world, our own flesh, and the devil himself that persuades us. You know, if you find yourself thinking about something over and over and over again, and, and you know it's wrong, and you, kept, you keep thinking about it, uh, and it sort of a, a obsesses, you know, it's in your heart and mind a lot, that, you know, that's an idol that you're struggling with, you're fighting with uh, in your life. You need to get a hold of that. God is patient, and he wants us to repent. We have a willingness to be coerced. I used to work in a hospital. I was on the bioethics committee. And um, we talked about a certain religions. Uh, I think it was like Jehovah's Witnesses particularly that, that have a strict rule. You can't take a blood transfusion. And, but when it's applied to children, you would find that the parents would have a willingness to be coerced. They, they love their child so much, they're willing to, if, if you force me to, to give my child a transfusion, I'll, I'll do that. You know, I know it's the right thing to do, right? That's, that's a, a principle in medical ethics. But we apply this <laughs> to sin. We're, we're so willing to be coerced to worship the idol, to... Uh, disobey God and to listen to the false teaching. Uh, to coerce is to compel by force. You're kind of saying, hey, the devil made, made me do it. You know, I lost my freedom and I, I am forced to do this. You know, watch out. Uh, this, these people of Israel living in this culture, this strong culture, it's the age of persuasion all around them and they're taking in the culture as it was in, in the psalm today too, uh, we're compelled, we're intimidated by authority, especially without regard for individual desire or volition. Do not be willing to be coerced. You Say no uh, to it. Uh, I liked uh, John MacArthur in this statement. All false teachers are purveyors of false religion are the enemies of Christ and the enemies of truth and the enemies of the gospel and the enemies of souls. See, these people aren't just providing, well, an alternative lifestyle. They're actually the enemy of you, your inner being, your soul, your person. They're anti-human. <laughs> to convince somebody to rebel against God is you are not a humanist. I love humans. We, we want to encourage them to do the right thing, to live for God. That's the true humanist. I know I'm mismatching the philosophical word, but let's claim it back again. You know, This is good for humanity. The pervasive culture that says, no, it doesn't really matter how you live. You know, truth is, a man may ask, you know, is it wrong for me to love this, this woman? And the, you know, the counselor's asked, well, you know, uh, your other marriage, your marriage is not giving you much joy, and this is bringing you lots of joy, so hey, how can it be wrong? You know, you're getting fulfillment and joy out of that. And of course, we would seek counselors. We were willing to be persuaded to do that. So how do we respond to this? Well, as I said, uh, there's a long-term interpretation of this passage that says that big things are going to be happening and God in his power and his sovereign grace is going to show huge and wonderful things 
in, in the very near future. Maybe the next time that whistle rings, I don't know. Uh, it's going to happen. We need to be ready for that reality. But here and now, what is the Holy Spirit saying to you and to me from this passage of Scripture? How do we respond? And this, these are some ways. First of all, seek the truth. I think it's a big part of this, this passage. Uh, there's these false teachers. Seek the truth. Compare Scripture with Scripture. Secondly, this is about honoring and worshiping God. You know, we want to honor God as He has revealed Himself. To know Him and to honor Him and to be drawn to His power and beauty and greatness uh, and His salvation. And then I think repent now is definitely a part of this passage. Uh, if God gives us the opportunity, repent now. Turn from our idols. And then finally, let's realize that time may be very short. You know, all kidding aside, it could be very, very short. We don't know when this, this, the next click on the big you know, clock of God will occur. So we want to be ready and the best way to be ready is to be repentant, to turn to Christ fully, to trust him completely as your savior, and to you know, make amends with those who have offended on this earth, and live for God and preach the gospel uh, to others who need to hear. Let's pray. I just want to pause, Lord, and thank you for this uh, text of scripture, and we ask, oh Father, that you would teach us your truth from it. And Lord, that you would apply it to our lives. We, we see that the people were dabbling with idolatry and being led astray by a very pervasive and uh, persuasive culture all around them. And we live in such a place too. It's pervasive. It's everywhere. And it's persuasive, oh Lord. We want to be coerced. We want to be persuaded. In your grace, O oh Lord, would you pour out on us a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy and help us to mourn for our sin and, and in that desire to repent, help us to say to you, you are our God. And thank you so much, O oh Lord, that when you call forth your sword, when you call forth your sword, you didn't drop it on us, but you dropped it, you... you purposefully killed your own shepherd uh, for our sins. He took the wrath that we deserved. Uh, oh, Lord, thank you for that. Thank you that he rose again in victory uh, over our sin as well. So prepare us for his visit very soon. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead.